We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. edition of the People I Sort of Know podcast. I'm Chase Parm, and this week we're going to talk with Andrea Hickerson. She's the Ole Miss School of Journalism and New Media Dean. She's been on the job since July 1st, just starting her second semester here in Oxford. So we're going to talk a good bit about education, journalism education, the field of journalism, what's next, and much more. Also get her impressions of Ole Miss and the city of Oxford to this point. She was previously at the University of South Carolina, where she was the director of their journalism and media department. She was an associate dean there, and she spent a long time in Rochester, New York, as well on the faculty at RIT. So we're going to talk with her here coming up on this edition of the show. I've enjoyed talking to her to this point and during her time in Oxford, and we'll get to it now. So here is Andrea Hickerson, the dean for the Ole Miss School of Journalism and New Media. Andrea Hickerson now joining us. Thanks for the time today. It's on a uh, on a Friday as uh, just getting back in the session. First week back in uh, in school. You had your first semester last year after getting here in, uh, in July. I guess to start here, what have you thought so far? Oxford and what did you know about the school, the community? How did it sort of play out from the very beginning? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for taking the time with me today to chat. Um, it's been a great first semester in Oxford and at Ole Miss. And um, like everybody says, once you get on campus, it's, it's hard to leave. So I'm approaching almost the year mark from when I interviewed on campus. Um, and, you know, the number one thing that strikes me is what a creative space it is that I feel like here people are really collaborative and they want to get things done and they're really here to help people. And that's a really great space to be in. It's, it's not a place where I'm looking to maintain something. It's a place where we're looking to grow and make it constantly exciting. And, and the students are here for that. They are bringing that life to us and constantly pushing us to be better. And um, it's just been really great to be part of this community and the energy that it has. What does the process look like with taking a job like this? I mean, when from you say you say a year ago when you interviewed or what that looks like, how long of a process and how does it even come on your radar? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So um, it is a long process. Um, so in this case, sometimes universities use executive search companies. And that was the case in, in this situation. Um, and I thought, well, gee, that sounds really fun. I knew that they had a great history of doing journalism here. Um, and so that was kind of the initial kind of sticky your toe in. Um, but also when I came here, 
was really open-minded. I didn't know what I was going to find. Right. And you're looking for a fit as well as to a program. Like this is a good match for me personally and for this, this group of people. Um, and I was really struck with how open everybody was on the interview. And that was both with my colleagues and with the students that I met and with the administration that I felt like, um, it was a place where they were looking again to collaborate and make things. Um, and they weren't looking to hire a particular type of person. They were looking for someone who could come in and take it to the next level. Um, so let's see that I interviewed in February. Um, and then normally they bring in several candidates into a pretty grueling period of two days where you do presentations, um, you meet in small groups, large groups, um, it's, it can be fairly exhausting. And then it's, it probably takes three or four weeks at least afterwards, depending on when you come in um, to hear back about things and it can take just a very long time, <laughs> um, which I guess is good news because if you have to move and uproot a family like I did, it does give you a lot of time to do that. And so um, we bought a house before we moved here online, believe it or not, because I know the Oxford housing market is very tight. Um, but I have to say, I have no regrets about that. Yeah. Uh, I was happy to have that done. and didn't want to be starting a new job and finding a house at the same time. Yeah. What do you when you come for the visit, you're looking at the school, the job, the town, and that's in that's such right. a compressed period. How do you sort of go about evaluating everything that's required? Are you talking to people? Obviously, you've got faculty members. Are you bouncing things off them online? I mean, what does that look like? Absolutely. And it, it starts off campus, too, because our world is pretty small when you get into it. So asking other people who have had experiences going to Ole Miss or um, alumni that might be in my network or colleagues that have friends that work here type of thing. So it, it's kind of, even though it's a semi-closed process, I mean, it's publicly announced who the finalists are. There's a lot of kind of a network about who's going on, who's coming to <laughs> campus. There's that going on as well. Um, but yeah, doing a lot of homework about the town and what kind of place is this to live and what are the schools like? What is the housing like? Um, and one thing that I really appreciate that Ole Miss did when they set up the interview um, is I got to go around with a realtor, um, which was really helpful just to see the town and have a map and kind of point out landmarks. So I had a general sense of where things are. And um that, that big question of, do you see yourself living here is, is really key because it wasn't just me coming. I've got a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and my husband, and we're all coming. And is this going to be a place that's going to have something for all of us? How did they see it? Did they come with you at some point? How does the whole family process sure. come in and checking out the place? Yeah. So um, after the offer, they came out by themselves. I had a work function that I had to attend to and they visited the schools and felt very welcome there. Um, and I think partly because of COVID being before this, that it made it a little bit easier for them to move because they hadn't been really embedded in their schools there. So they were pretty open-minded um, about that. My husband works from home, so that was a little bit easier on that end. It was just kind of finding the school, getting into some camps and creating some connection points for them. And fortunately, there's so many athletics and extracurricular activities around here. It was pretty easy to just come right in. You were at South Carolina prior to this. Uh, similarities, differences, just in general from the job. I mean, were you were you anticipating a, a structure that was completely different? I mean, how do they compare or contrast? I know it's a very broad question, yeah. but just in but general. It's a really good question. I mean, I think scale, um, not so much of the programs. Like if you look numerically at, um, so the School of Journalism at the University of South Carolina isn't a college, but it's roughly about the same size. So in that sense, they're pretty similar. However, the towns are different. Columbia is a, not a huge city, but it's um, a city that is growing and um, you can be 45 minutes away from things in Columbia. So the faculty were really dispersed there. So it didn't feel quite like we were embedded in the city as, as colleagues and as neighbors quite the same way that you are in Oxford, the sense that we're in this together. So it made it hard for people to gather socially. Um, 
The university is bigger though. So even though the program was about the same, I think South Carolina has over 31 students. So when you're looking at the profile of the whole campus, a smaller percentage of those students are going to be in journalism. Um, so it's been really nice here to, to really be in the mix. Um, one thing that I've appreciated about the University of Mississippi is how often or how people see journalism and narrative storytelling is central to Mississippi and central to this campus. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is just such a wonderful recognition and a great place to be, um, not having to justify ourselves, but they're glad we're here. <laughs> is this the uh, smallest town you ever lived in? I see you've got oh, you know, yeah. Texas and Washington and Absolutely. Syracuse. So you, but you, you've seen the gamut of kind of across the country, but I would assume this is one of the smaller places. It so. is absolutely the smallest town I've ever been in. Um, but, and I'm glad now, I think as a young person and as a, you know, wherever we would know you, it might be quite a difficult, um, but to come in as an adult and, and with a family and um, it's just felt very easy to get around. And I really like that I can go home for lunch. I've never lived a place where I could go home for lunch and have enough time to actually eat the lunch before I had to come back. So that's been nice. Did you get into this career from the teaching side or the journalism side? I mean, what 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 appealed to this? That's a, a great question. So really from the journalism side um, and the storytelling side, um, I always liked international news in particular. So avid reader, avid news consumer, even when I was in, in elementary school, particularly middle school. And journalism is a great way to meet people, a great way to talk to people and a great way to learn things. So it's really a profession where you can show your curiosity and live that. And so that really appealed to me. Um, but then I had a moment when I was an undergrad at Syracuse where I was studying abroad in Strasbourg, France. Okay. And I, you had to have an internship as part of this academic program. And so I started working at a refugee Welcome Center. Um, so we're in France and Strasbourg, right on the border with Germany. And at that time, in the late 90s, there were a lot of refugees from the Middle East at that point. And also from, um, I guess, at the Eastern Europe at that point, too. So Kosovo area. And when I was meeting them, I realized how little I knew about the world. And it was a very humbling experience. And so it was from that moment that I knew I had more school to do. Um, so I went to the University of Texas to get my master's degrees, one in journalism and Middle Eastern studies, um, because I wanted to be a foreign correspondent at that point. Um, the timing of that turned out to be fairly interesting. So this was in two, fall 2001 is when I started Middle Eastern studies. And at the time before, when I was starting up to it, it was just kind of weird to people. People didn't know a lot about it. I think they thought either it was, you know, you were either studying Israel or antiquities were kind of the two things that people would think about it. Um, but for me, it was Kurds, which are the largest population um, without their own country in the Middle East and scattered across Iraq and Iran, Syria, parts of the former Soviet republics. Um, but then, of course, 9-11 happened when I'm there, which kind of shut down some practical opportunities, but really opened up a lot of academic opportunities for me. Um, and I realized that I'd like to do more in depth. And sometimes in journalism, like, yeah, it's great that you get to do so many things, but you don't get to settle and kind of really seep in the deepness of things. Um, and it also turns out that universities are really great places to be curious, too. And you never know how your day is going to go. So a lot of the things that drew me to journalism are really in in higher ed. And from there, you another advanced degree and yeah. the workforce. Yeah. And so goes. went to the University of Washington um, to do my PhD in communication, um, which was was great. And it's really people don't often get jobs where you get your PhD. They don't like to hire their own. So that was always kind of a temporary thing. Um, so my first job was at Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. And I was there for 10 years um, and it was great to come back 
closer to the East Coast where I was from originally um, to be closer to family when the kids were little. And that was a really great experience because that was a STEM school. It still is a STEM school known for their engineering and also their relationship with Kodak. So they had a lot of imaging science. And at that time, they actually were starting a journalism program. So kind of unusual to be starting a journalism program in 2009. Um, But they were really looking to complement some of the other programs they had, including photography, where they had a very established photojournalism program. And I think that really set the, the tone for my career of being in a place where I could make things up um, and being encouraged to do that and go talk to someone in photography, go some, talk to someone in business. And um, I learned a lot of, of the relationship between journalism and communication and kind of those technical skill sets that I still rely on today um, and are really informing the vision that I have here at the University of Mississippi. Do you still study middle like where 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 does where does middle east still stay in your interest level at this yeah point? i mean I, I still read about it a lot a few years ago actually i went i was able to go to northern iraq uh, it was with a, a peace group um and it, it meant a lot to to go there so i still do some work on um transnational populations so looking at groups mostly in the, in the u.s and how they communicate back but i've done um some research on those populations and continue to do so you traveled a pretty good bit the last month or two, right? You've been overseas. Yeah. Yes, yes. I just got back from Africa. Um, one thing that's really neat about the integrated marketing program at the University of Mississippi is we have a cohort from Ethiopian Airlines. And so um, these were people kind of at all levels at the airline that came and did the whole master's degree program, or they did it online, uh, but they participated in our regular master's degree program. They participated in, in graduation. They had the opportunity to be here last year. Um, but we went over to see them in their LA. And also, hopefully, with the idea of growing that program. But I was deeply impressed with the company um, and, and their operations. Ethiopian Airlines actually runs its own university there. They're the largest um, African-owned airline, but they also own the airport, um, the university, they're training pilots, they're training air traffic controllers. And actually some of the graduates of our program are now running their IMC department for the airline. So it was really rewarding to see that. um, And also they do a lot of cargo, which I didn't realize they were really instrumental in distributing COVID vaccines throughout Africa. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned the IMC program, obviously, here broken up into journalism, integrated marketing communications inside the School of Journalism and New Media, just in general. And I know it's a, it's probably a long-winded answer, but journalism and education today with the way media is just in general, what are you what are you hoping to be the base skill sets for journalism students sure. when they come to the program? You know, it's an interesting question because I feel like there's a lot of fads in journalism education over time. And at times it can feel like a pile on, right? So um, when I was in journalism school, I majored in newspaper journalism. I don't think that major actually exists anymore. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Um, but, you know, I was not required to do design. I was not doing coding. I think I took maybe one photography course. Um, It was really reporting and writing. And those are still the core things. I'd say reporting, um, doing interviews and writing. And so that are are the backbone and will forever be the backbone of that. And that's why I like to tell people that journalism is a good generalist degree, that you will get jobs with those skill sets. If you know how to write concisely, talk to people, get it accurate, um, you'll be fine. And in terms of other skills, I think having visual literacy is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I use visual kind of broadly because it shifts a lot. And we have seen a lot of changes in that, um, you know, whether you're doing video or whether you're doing audio or 
who knows what, um, you know, slideshows of music was a thing for a while. Um, all of those are relevant, but not everybody's going to be good at everything. And so I think that's it is having some kind of literacy or competency in those things. Another key thing that I think is non-negotiable at this point, but journalism education is still trying to catch up with is data literacy. So the old joke was people went into journalism because they didn't want to do math. Sure. And that is just unrealistic. It probably always was. Um, but, you know, being able to look at spreadsheets to be able to scrape data from government websites, make visualizations about them are really core um, functions of journalism these days. And that's where the higher paying journalism jobs are in okay. computer assisted journalism or data journalism or looking at analytics. You know, and just not to be old man yelling at cloud or anything, but as communication seems to have weakened across the country and our world and our society and everything else, it seems that just having those those base understandings and that base knowledge probably even moves you up in a little more to maybe make it even more important to have gone through those. It's a generalist degree, whether it's law school or whatever you're doing with the journalism or IMC degree. Absolutely. I mean, I think communication gets a bad rap sometimes because people don't know what it means because it seems so basic to some people, you know, like, I tell people I study communication with like, oh, like what we're doing right now. And uh, and it's so much more difficult than that. Right. And so I think fortunately, unfortunately, you know, we're having a crisis related to facts and communication. Um, and so it's it's taking our professions and holding them up in some ways, higher regards. I mean, we're criticized a lot, but it's showing just how important it is and not everybody can do it really well. Um, so absolutely, those generalist skills, those jobs, it, it is law, it is, it's sports, it, it, it is so many different things. It's business. Um, I've had accounting companies come in here. And truly, I can say is that since you know, I've been at Mississippi, the number of people looking for graduates from our program, I almost can't meet up with the demand for people looking for interns and people looking for jobs. Because I think one thing that has shifted in the last 10 years or so is that companies now realize they need to hire people to do social media. That was something they thought just was an add-on, but they realize that that is an actual job and they realize that they need a new skill set for that. And they can find that through new graduates. Is that a growing profession to the point of, I mean, you know, because I, 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 we have intern possibilities through IMC, through social media, those things. And I get that answer a lot is what is the supply demand of true social media positions? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think we're moving away from focusing on the platform, whether it be social media to what skill, what are you trying to do on social media? Right. So crisis communication, (laughs) that's a big one, right? (laughs) Brand management um, or even personal management or personal branding. Right. So all of those different things relate to social media. That's just a way people communicate. And I think where before people were asking, you know, just traditional um, PR people to go over on our social media account. There's now an acknowledgement that you need a skill set to do that and you need critical thinking with that. Um, and it's not just something you can add on. It has to be really integrated into the workflow of your organization. And, and that's something I'm really passionate about is saying that communication is really central to problem solving. You don't call on the communicators at the end after your crisis and, and go you know, tell them to tell the public what's done. You know, communicators can help you assess what the problem is, what people are saying about it, and help you come up with a solution and then hopefully meet the the audience that you're trying to reach. You know, you mentioned just in learning those things, you also have to know what's good, what's bad. And I was I, I did a podcast a couple weeks ago with Hogan Gidley, who's been in political communications entire life. And he was discussing confirmation bias and where we get our news and what actually is is quality. How do you go about teaching the students where to actually look or what to interpret for things or how does that sort of 
media literacy come into mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, the early parts of the education to then understand where to go? Sure. Yeah. So it's interesting when you ask students why they're going to communication fields now. And I think some of them will still say what they would have said 25 years ago. I like writing sure. and that you know, that's what I'm interested in, or I like sports and I like fashion sure. and I wanted to go into those areas. So that's really, you know, they're teenagers when they're coming to us. That's been their lot of experience with that. So they're really, one thing I love about journalism education is they really, our students are kind of removed from the rhetoric people have about national media and it being really polarized. And they're approaching it from a more pragmatic type of way. And what's neat is when we see people come here, they get it, they start to take more classes and they think, oh, wow, this housing beat is really interesting. <laughs> and honest to goodness, we see people start to shift that way. Um, integrated marketing is really interesting too, because people don't necessarily come in as freshmen knowing what it is. We call it a word of mouth major that people start to understand, oh, that's what you can do with that. Oh, it's a little bit of public relations, a little bit of advertising and a little bit of marketing. And and then they can see the wide applicability for that and kind of grow their space in there. But it's not always obvious to students when they come in right away. It's kind of a romanticized notion of this is what I would like to do. Yeah, it's, it's the same as I want to go into sports because I just want to cover football games or yeah. something like that. Yeah. It's like, okay, let's back up. Yeah, like, I, I get it. Yeah. You know, or I want to be Aaron Andrews or the sideline reporter That's instead right. of, hey, she can name you know, 128 offensive coordinators. There's a Exactly. There's a path to yeah, like, I like is. buying clothes. I want to be a fashion reporter, right? I mean, there, there's a, a long line of those. And it, it's great. And that's something when they bring that enthusiasm to this and they really start to get into it, they realize that, you know, to take fashion business, those are, those are businesses, right? That is business reporting. It's community reporting. It, there's all these different issues involved and they kind of see a depth of it that they didn't know about. Um, and we've seen great success. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Do you look for a certain percentage journalism, IMC? I mean, what do you like for a makeup of the program the way it is right now? Yeah, we, we don't pay attention to that. You know, we'll take them as they're interested. And then also the other thing is that a lot of our classes, you could, you'd have to take classes on both sides. So we don't have a straight up IMC where you don't take any journalism courses. Sure. There's a lot of flexibility in it. So we still function as a cohesive group, even though we have those. Um, and we have student groups, like we have student ambassadors that will mix together and do things. Um, and then, of course, we have the Student Media Center, which is affiliated with school, which is over at Bishop Hall, which is great because it, you don't even have to be one of our students or a major to participate in that. And that's been a great experience, too, because I feel I'd be happy if we were the most popular minor on campus okay. because everyone, as I said, needs to be a better communicator. Um, but that gives the students the opportunity on their first day on campus to go be part of a TV show or go experiment with radio or go help out with a DM. Um, and that's that's pretty special. Not all not all journalism programs have that. Well, and to have it to that level where you get to make mistakes and there's no real repercussion or consequence, in those things. I mean, I can remember that when when I was here and in, in, in the city media center and Ralph Perseth was my our advisor back then. And he always would if we mess up. He would obviously criticize and he was pretty hardcore and whatnot. But then he would always his, his saying was, hey, the engineers don't put their toothpick bridges on display. And the point <laughs> being, when they screw up in the engineering school, you're not it's not front of facing where everybody's making fun of whatever at that day. So you you learn a lot by that. You can get the calls from the people because there's, there's enough real world in it. Right. To still, hey, you've got to you've got to deal with people. Absolutely. Which is, which is so much of it. And what I also like is when things go wrong, um, you're still in this educational space where we can take the time to kind of take that apart about why it went wrong, because we're not feeding the same news cycle that, you know, national, local, professional media are taking. And and I think sometimes that's what gets lost when people go and get their first jobs is that opportunity to say, OK, why was this wrong? Why was that maybe not the appropriate source for this story? Or how did it come across differently or in a way that seemed unfair? fair how do you sort of grade maybe not grade but how do you sort of comprise the entire media landscape in the united states right now i mean is, is it one of those deals where as i mentioned confirmation bias or this or all the different things going on currently what is I'm trying to think of the best way to put this but as far as when you've got students going out into the into, into that workforce mm-hmm. where do you sort of rate you know quality that is right. our, our media world right. today I think if I had one word to describe the media world today, it would be confusing Okay. because I think it's become so muddled about with people's opinions and then what is actually out there. And I think that there's a lot of good journalism happening. I think people are wrong when they say that, oh, back when we had Walter Cronkite or, you know, three major networks, things were better. They weren't better. We just didn't know what we were missing. Right. I mean, there was a homogeneity to the news. There were a lot of stories that weren't getting out there. And I think we are seeing a, access to a lot more news now the problem is is we don't know where it's coming from necessarily like there are news sites masquerading as local news that are political in nature Mm -hmm. um and a a casual consumer won't be able to tell the difference or not um and then you know there are a lot of news deserts there are a lot of communities that are underserved where that could be getting better news but we do i mean we have a problem an economic problem with news and 
the careers are hard to get. Um, you know, some cities are not well served because people don't want to live there or they don't have local funders to back something. So it's a complicated thing, but I think there really is good journalism out there. I think it burns people out. That's something that concerns me, burns young talent out. Mm-hmm. So I have to go through layoffs so many times when you're young. Um, but I think, you know, places like MLK 50 in Memphis, like there's some really interesting things going on. Um, people just don't know about them. And it's also one of those deals where it takes a little while to get to, a, you know, livable wages at times or, you know, they've got to stick in it for still That's the right. road as it gets up or moves into whatever it is that, you know, puts them into a good spot financially or right. even just to start their family or whatever it is they're doing exactly. in, in, in that realm. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, back when I was in journalism school, people would go work for companies and you would feel reasonably, okay, once I get in this company, yeah. I can stay at affiliates or I can go to the chain of papers, right? And that's less and less the case right now. And so we do have to teach a skill set of students to be resilient. Um, we could probably do better. I mean, this journalism education generally is preparing people to freelance careers or, or function as small businesses themselves. Um, but that's a big trend too, kind of entrepreneurship, trying to figure out, you know, what communities need to tell a story and really kind of embedding in the community. But one one positive trend in journalism I think has changed is that we no longer think we we put the story out there and good luck finding it. We know that that's not going to work, right? So now you're seeing more um, experiments and engagement journalism, solutions journalism, Mm -hmm. where you go to the audience first, right? And you spend some time, maybe it's a focus group where you're just talking to people to figure out what do they need? What do they want to know? Then writing those stories, then following up to figure out how they actually did that. And it Journalism has not been good about that, um, but I think we're being a bit more thoughtful about it. But again, if we don't have the business model to support that work, because it is hard work. And that's one thing that frustrates me talking to people that um, that don't, that are, I would say, aware of the rhetoric of journalism as opposed to the actual practice of journalism, right? The practice of journalism is hard and you've got to be dogged and you've got to be on the ball and, you know, vet everything. Um, it's not people just sitting there making up ideas, good journalism. Mm-hmm. And you have to, once people realize that, they can come along, but we're not really good about telling people what journalism is. Yeah, deciphering the difference between right. the two and just leaving it up to the general public to to, to know the difference. I was reading Maybe it was this week, maybe it was the internet last week, a story, maybe it was the New York Times on AI and how it's affecting colleges, writing, how you get through the the situation of it. What is going on there and what level of concern is that right now? Sure. Um, this has been a great topic of conversation in the School of Journalism and New Media the past couple of weeks. Okay. Um, so it, it's interesting because AI has been around for a while. Sure. Um, and But it's just finally, I think with the chat GPT is the first time that I've seen some of my colleagues um, be like, oh my gosh, what does this mean for me? So it was kind of out there. It was somebody else's field. But if you can have AI write things, what does that mean? And I think most of the initial conversations have been about teaching, right? How do we know that students are going to turn in authentic work? Um, And so that's important, but it speaks to something else is about um, veracity and evidence, right? Which are central to communication professions. How do you know something is what it reports to be? And so I've been working with a team of interdisciplinary researchers for, I think, four years now on a deep fake detection tool. So this is specifically for journalists to detect whether or not a video has been artificially manipulated. Um, And it's a really hard technical problem. So we've been going into journalism newsrooms to try to figure out how they check fact check videos um, and I hate to tell you, but they don't have really good processes okay. for these yet. So um, there's a real need for this. So it's been out there, but a lot, I think, of journalists and um, have thought that 
AI is kind of a hypothetical problem. I think chat GPT is the first thing that has made people feel like, okay, it's not this hypothetical future problem. It's here right now. And so in terms of how we approach it in the school, it's several different ways is, is one having an awareness of it in our teaching. Another one is if this is the field that our students are going into, and it's going to be impacted by AI, even if we ourselves are not going to be experts in AI, we need to, to show them how they can be aware of it. But then also there's a huge part of us that this is our moment. I really feel like <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is our moment because what, what we're seeing about AI is there's a lot of really bad AI out there and you're always going to need a human to interpret okay. and to go through things. And if we can educate groups of students that have an awareness and some like minimal expertise in AI, but can do the real crafting and can explain it to the public, because that's a key thing that's missing, then we're setting people up for really successful careers. And so I'm really excited about how the school can kind of lean into developments in AI more broadly to show our, our expertise in public communication. Because I think the Associated Press has been using some version of that for Major League Baseball recaps, or maybe it's Major League Baseball Agate or something like that for a while now, where they can do just the general, yeah, especially stats-based things, because that's so much easier to do than, than any type of other human element to it. From a teaching standpoint, how complicated is it to discover if somebody right. is using it effectively? Yeah, I don't think it's that bad. And you're right, the AP has really been all up, like ahead of the times with this, with sports and also with finance, right? Okay. So some things are pretty easy to basically auto-generate. They're scraping results from somewhere else and pushing it out there. And if you look at it that way, that's a significant tool because that frees up someone's time that used to pick up the phone and call and figure out what the box score was. Um, they can now be doing in-depth reporting. So I think that there are certainly tasks in communication fields that can be automated, would be very helpful to be automated. And if we look at it as a value add and, and just how it's changing things, that'll be fine. Um, I worked with someone once who was talking about how AI was going to change professions. And he said to me, he was way more worried about our STEM graduates than he was about journalists, uh, journalism right. communication, because it, you know, if you learn how to code, right. And code has been a great career for a lot of people, but if AI can start to code, what happens to those jobs? Right. Sure. Um, and so our fields by nature, by being a little bit more qualitative, social science, you can have a lot of resilience built into them. As we've seen, we've had a lot of challenges. And so I, I really do believe that this is the moment for, for journalism, communication and AI, um, because it finally is relevant to people and not just some technical thing in the background that we don't need to understand. From a student standpoint, is the concern too that, you know, they're still in such the growing and learning process that you're still using your brain all the ways and not just using his crutches to keep you from researching or doing some of the ways that you would otherwise do? That's right. Yeah. So I think, you know, the challenge for us now is to figure out what tools can help students. And I think we have to learn that ourselves. So one of the things we're doing this semester is putting together a kind of a faculty reading working group on AI, where we come together to talk about issues. We're going to have, I think, a pizza party and hang out in the lab one night and just kind of tinker um, because we need that space too. And if we're going to guide our students, we need to figure this out and how they're using it. It's funny though, some of the early feedback we have from students about AI, it, in, at least in our fields, they're not really interested. They're not actually playing with it. Um, so, you know, it, it's having us rethink our teaching, what we want them to do, how we're going to get out there, but also threats, too. So going back to images, right, the copyright is a big issue for this. And if we're content creators and our copy gets picked up by AI, what does that mean for us? What protections do we have? So it really is challenging, I think, fundamentally, all the classes that we teach. Um, now, whether or not I don't think we'd ever be, quote, experts on AI, but it's it's the world we live in. And if these are our fields, we have to understand that world. 
what trends are you seeing in admissions majors? I mean, is the is the entire school growing into next year? What do, what, what do you see? Sure. We're in a really good position. So um, COVID has been hard to a lot of public universities and private universities. We're seeing an uptick on that. Um, and journalism education in general has been flat or falling off. Ours was up this past year by seven students, um, which is great. I'll take it. Um, so in some ways, we're a little better than the national trend in, the, in okay. these fields. I think integrated marketing communication is really special and unique to us. That is still a really new degree, largest degree on campus. We're very proud of that. So that has really created a lot of traction. And I think what is so great about that particular degree is that it blends the storytelling expertise with a little bit of that business stuff. So we're getting people that don't fit in a business school kind of come over here. Um, and you get a blend of advertising, public relations, visual communication. And that's kind of the traditional major names in some schools. But in practice, a lot of companies don't have those departments anymore. They're merged. They're integrated. So having that integrated marketing education title, I think, gives us an edge over similar programs, some of our peer programs. And there's great opportunities on campus to to partner with with athletics or with um, other units that need help with their social media. But the students have a lot of opportunities here. Completely in another direction. I saw on Christmas that you uh, you did your book swap every yes. year. Uh, so are we drawing names of other family members? What is the process yes. of how this plays? Oh, this is my favorite family tradition. <laughs> yeah. So we we just the four of us we draw names, okay. and then you have to buy a book for that person, and we swap them on Christmas Eve. And it's always really great because everyone's excited, and we have this like couple hours we're just sitting there in our pajamas reading our books, okay. um, and it, it's really fun, especially as the boys' tastes have changed over time to try to figure out what they want and um it's just the best i love it what are you into reading um i'm in, in between books right now which is bad um i just finished one called the cloisters which fed to all my um simple taste it was about academia and museums and a mystery set in the cloisters in new york city okay it was great we uh just before we started thinking we're talking about running and different things when you're running are you podcast music nothing what are you what are you doing um, music, okay. mostly music stuff. Although I find that most of my music tastes are not really suitable for running. Like I like, um, like indie kind of slow stuff. And when I'm running, sometimes that just the makes me want to stop. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's making me lazy. Yeah. It's like good. a coffee shop music, not really running music. Um, so that, yeah, book on taper hard. Cause I find that I space out when I'm running too. So I'm not really listening to what it is. So that's a challenge. It's why I've gotten into, or I've gotten into, I've always been like this. I will run to podcasts that are not narrative because I don't, it's just something it, it's there and I can listen. It's maybe it's comedy. Maybe it's, movie reviews, whatever, but it doesn't really matter. It, it's just there. Like I wouldn't think of cereal and I'd go, okay, I really got to pay attention right. or something, but I've done that. And then I've almost turned it now where audiobooks are just podcasts. I convinced myself forever. I was against audiobooks. I didn't like them, but now it's, it's like all self-help, okay. but it's like, that's just a long podcast is all this. That's a 10 hour that's podcast on self-help. So I, I've gotten... I've gotten a little more into audiobooks finally. It's oh, that's taken good. A while. Yeah. I should try it again. I think I'm always daunted when they're like, this is 15 hours. I'm like, am I going to run for 15 hours? Is that enough? I will eventually, but. <laughs> I'm just like in the car driving, which here you have no rush hour. That's you're, right. You're everywhere you need in, in three minutes. So that's, that's a little, that's, that's a little different. 
You came from a place in the SEC. Um, I know you're into sports to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, is it nice just to still be in a place where there's athletic programs that, at a high level? Absolutely. I love it. Okay. Um, because there's always something to do in town and it's always a go. So we've gone to a lot of basketball games yeah. um, and it's just, it's so convenient. I mean, that's not the overwhelming <laughs> reason to do it. Um, but no, it, it's really fun to have that energy and to see that level of play. Um, and have it be so accessible is, is really a special thing. Um, and so it's a great family activity. We've gone to volleyball. I've um, tried a lot of new things this year, and I'm grateful that it's so easy. Did your kids become South Carolina fans just because you were there for a little bit or what? Not so much. Again, being there that weird COVID year. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Women's basketball there, Down Staley. That was sure. the part. I have an aunt and uncle that are uh, season ticket holders. So we went okay. the closest to them. So that that was the thing we we would miss. But, um, I mean, heck, it's been a great team here. So it's been fun. What are sort of the last thing? What are some of the goals just in journalism in general? Like, what are you trying to do? Is it simply, is it enrollment? Is it changing curriculum? I mean, if you have sort of a 6, 12, 18, 24 month plan, what is that for yeah. the school? I mean, I think it's to grow, um, to grow our expertise with our students and with our programs. So right now we're talking about adding a third degree, which I'm pretty excited okay. about. Um, it looks like it'll probably be more of a, a critical thinking, kind of topical degree, something okay. less skills-based, because we found that when some students transfer in, it can be hard for them with some of the skills classes to get out. And kind of go back to what we were saying is that communication is such an interesting field that people um, think they know about, but don't always know about. There's a lot of room for classes on like data and youth or data and teenagers or political communication. Um, and we have a lot of those classes on the books, but we want to pull them out and create a degree that people can take that way. So it's really just, I think, showing people that we are we are a problem solving degree and we, we expand into a lot of different things. Um, and then also, I, we're really going to be on the forefront, I think, of AI and on campus. Um, we're doing some interesting collaborations with criminal justice. Um, looking at narrative intelligence with a, a company called Edge Theory and trying to figure out, you know, what's the role for communicators in that. So sorry about that. <laughs> so sorry. Um, so I think those are those are some of the big things that we're looking at. And we need a new building. I can't go without saying that. So I mean, we're we are about to out, we have outgrown our space. I think really? even before I got here. So the social uh, the student media center is in a different building on campus. Sure. We've got faculty in a different building, and um, we want to be all together. And we've got a great spot right off the Grove. Um, sure. And so we really it would just be it mean the world to us to put everyone together and see what we can do when we socialize with each other more regularly and our students. How long or difficult is that to create the new major curriculum? And what does that process look like? Right. It, it depends, I think, on the willingness of your faculty, truly. Okay. I, don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. And I, question I or anything. That, yeah. Yeah. You know, we have, we've had really good conversations. The faculty have come back with great energy and um, I sense a real excitement in the building and, you know, wanting to respond to the moment. Um, so I think we could do it for the new major in this particular case. I think we can do pretty quickly because we again, we have the classes already. So it doesn't it's not adding new faculty necessarily and doing it. We'd like to get to that point, but it's a pretty small step in this case. If we were to try something totally, you know, that was not already in our wheelhouse, it would be a little bit longer. But we do have to get IHL approval and go through all those steps. Um, so it, it can take a while, but we've got a lot of motivation here to do it. Is that, obviously, it's a key of any leadership position. But when you when you get here, having your own ideas, but having people buy into your vision, right. but also understand where they're coming from and whatnot. I mean, how, did that process, has it gone as you would potentially hope in a lot of ways? 
It has. I mean, I really have been so appreciative of how open people have been with me. So when I got here, I, you know, sent out the note to meet with everybody I could one-on-one and that's been great. People were really unguarded in those conversations, which has really helped and informed things. And I think those first few months, um, you know, learning from individuals was great, but then the next step was seeing how do these people interact as a group? And that's a whole nother step to figure out, you know, okay, this is how we get things done as a group. So what's the process by getting through there? But, you know, when you tell people, this is what we want to do, this is how I think we should do it, or what do you think? And how has it happened here before? Um, it, it's really created, I think, a, a sense of, of shared purpose. And um, so far, so good. So far, so good. We're, we're working towards the same goal. And um, it, it's been great. We just put student work up in the hallway, which we're really excited okay. about to refresh our student gallery and another fun upcoming thing. We're going to put an Instagram wall in the building. So we have some students put a mural and it's little things like that, but they, they make everybody really happy and, and, and proud to be here as they should. You've got two or three things coming to the Overby Center and different things. I saw in the in the spring or in as well, a couple that are pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's, there's stuff, there's, there's, there events. there's, there's all sorts of those things. You got baseball and softball starting that's soon. Right. So you get to switch sports. Yes. You uh, get to get to do that as well. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate it as always. Uh let's uh let's do it again sometime. Definitely. Thank you very much. Thanks. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.